So I'm excited. I want to talk to you about a few things, but before we get there, I would like to do what is called a collect or a gathering this morning. Um, so Kate is going to help me with it by putting it on the screen. And for those of you that are not familiar with it, allow me to explain so you don't think we're part of a cult. All right? So what happens in a collect is somebody says something and you respond. What you will respond with is, do you mind putting it up for just a second, Kate? Is in the bold. All right, so that, that's the part you're responsible for. What's not in the bold, I'm responsible for. So let's go back to that cult thing. If you feel like this is weird and you're uncomfortable with it, don't say it. If you're okay with it, say it. But you all can't feel like it's not okay to say it, otherwise it's gonna be real, real awkward for me, okay? So we just gotta, some of you humor me, at least eight, that's all I'm asking for. <laughs> So as long as eight of you humor me and say this responsatory thing, it'll be great. Um, and trust me, I've been there in that awkward moment. Uh, have you ever heard the Apostles' Creed? Have you ever been in a church that says it? It says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I was like, I'm not Catholic, and I'm not going to be Catholic, so no. But now I object to other parts of it. I'm okay with the Catholic part. <laughs> so anyway, does that sound good? Is this a deal? Any questions? Comments, concerns, good, wonderful. I'm not going to give you the chance to say them anyway. So let us pray. Let us come together in humility. Sorry. You're sp maybe, maybe I should have looked at, okay, you're supposed to say the non-bolded part. All right. <laughs> My bad. My bad. So let's start over. <clears throat> Good morning! How are you all? No, just kidding. Anyway, so let us come together in humility. Though we may be tempted to use harsh words, let us come together in gentleness. Though we may want everything to happen quickly, let us come together in patience. Though the world around us often encourages hate, let us come together in love. In humility, gentleness, patience, love, and unity, let us worship the God who calls us together. Thanks. So if you would like to take your Bibles, if that's a thing, take your phone, take whatever, take your neighbor's phone or Bible, whatever. It's cool. We're in shirts. Everything's permissible, right? No, just kidding. And you'll turn to Leviticus. I am so excited about this this morning. So the joy is like Genesis is a wonderful place to start, and Leviticus is like the nitty-gritty, the complicated parts of life, right? I can see the excitement. So if you want to turn to Leviticus 1. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or from your flock of sheep and goats. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle, so that it may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hands on the animal's head, and the Lord will accept its death in your place and purify you, making you right with him. Then slaughter the young bull in the Lord's presence 
And Aaron's sons, the priests, will present the animal's blood by splattering it against the sides of the altar that stands in the entrance of the tabernacle. So I'm going to stop because I can't. It's a joke. We're not going through Leviticus. That would be awful this morning. <laughs> I just wanted to see your faces as I went through it. We were just going to do the first 13 chapters. Does that sound like that? No, I'm just kidding. No, we're not doing that at all. I like Leviticus. I appreciate the Old Testament, but we're not doing that this morning. I'm the fun speaker for the next 20, 30 minutes, not that. So actually what I want to talk to you about, so please don't be mad at me for that. I promise it was a joke. I will give you all of the scriptures if you would like to write them down or anything else. We'll end up being in Luke, genuinely. We will be in Luke 14. Um, but what I'm hoping to present is a God that is bigger than what you can read in Leviticus. What I'm hoping to share with you this morning is a God who embraces the people that the church has and does toss aside. What I'm hoping to share with you is a God who makes a table, a table bigger than you can build. What I'm hoping to share is a God who, if you will, not only builds the table, builds the chairs, makes the meal, sends out the invitation, and waits for you to arrive. I'm hoping to introduce you to this God who is revealed best in Jesus Christ. What I'm hoping to show is that this God is one you may know or may not know. And I'd love to have an opportunity to drive home this point. This single point that I want to talk about both now, in the middle, and at the end is that you, yes, you, you play a major part in extending this table. So if you'll go with me to Luke, it's the scripture I, wanna, I want us to hear and we'll come back to. It's a big section, so it's Luke 7, excuse me, Luke 14, 7 through 24. I'm going to read it. You're welcome to keep your Bible open to it because it's what we'll come back to. There are other scriptures in the midst of this, but it's at least a place that I want you to start with. So that's Luke 14, 7 through 24. When Jesus noticed all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit at the seats of honor at the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit at the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, and then you'll be embarrassed. You'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, they will come to you and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to the host, which I find hysterical, like sitting at a party, says this about the host, and then like makes direct eye contact with him. Talk about an uncomfortable situation. It's like me, me saying, parents? Mm. Anyway, so, so he turns to the host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing to be and attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and set out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guest, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I have to inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, well, I've just got five pair of oxen. I, I need to try them. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just gotten married. I cannot come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame After that, the servant had done that, he came and reported that there is still more room. So his master said, go into the country and lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come to the house, for it will be full. For none of those I first invited will ever taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. I'm so appreciating this liturgy this morning. Thanks, guys. There are different ways in which to read scripture and to comprehend it. One is contextual, historical accuracy where you take it just in the context that it is in and you do not change it. There's another that's close to that that's called a plain reading and you like pull it out, push it over, see what words literally apply to you and you drop it and hope for the best. And then there's this other one in which you try to read yourself and you go, where am I in that? Am I the host? Am I the person coming to the banquet? Um, It can be a little sketchy uh, for those of you that are really into theology. It can be a very far pull for trying to read yourself into scripture. But we're going to do that this morning. So we're going to commit a few heresies, guaranteed. Um, And I just want you to roll with them with me. And you can hate them later and hate me later. It's fine. There are stones in the parking lot free of charge. And I will try not to move. (laughs) It's all I can offer. But what I want to do is try to take that and see where we're at. So I can tell you, quite plainly, if there is a meal, I'm at the table. Why? I like food. I like food a lot. I'm sure you like food as well. My my second Sunday here, they were offering six packs in the back fridge. And I was like, what? Six packs in a church? They were six pack apple dumplings. That is two thirds of the reason that I'm a Mennonite. There was food. I was thoroughly convinced that this is the one chosen church of Jesus Christ, and he's coming back for only the Mennonites that feed people. (laughs) That's not true, but it's still a nice thought. So I want you to go on this journey with me. I'd like to talk about a few tables this morning. One is the table of Miss Lydia Emerson. Another is the table that's in my own home. Another table is my grandmother's. And then another table that is not clearly stated because it doesn't say there's a table, but if there's a banquet, nobody's eating on the floor in heaven, is written about in Luke. So I want to start with Miss Lydia's table. Some of you know her. Most, I think most all of us know her. Some of you who are visitors might not know who Lydia is or those that have not been attending for very long. But she's a wonderful person. 
So Lydia is the first person that I got this invitation to come over and have dinner at her table. Uh, I hadn't been at the church long, so I was a little skeptical of being like, I'm going to whose house? But she seems nice. She doesn't seem like she attacks people on the regular. I can go to hers. This will be fine. It'll be cool. And when I got there, I had the wonderful opportunity of, of meeting some people. But the funny part to me was when she said, Garth, come on over. And you know what? Bring your parents if they're free. My parents weren't at the church at the time. They weren't with me. But she was like, oh, no, no, you go get them, and you bring them all to the house. I would love to have you all over for supper. And you can come right over to the house after church ends. What hospitality. But when I went to Lydia's house, I walked in and I thought, oh, it will be a simple table set for six or eight. Wrong. Lydia Emerson has a table that could hold 25 of us, and we could still set some more around it. It is the biggest table I have ever seen in a dining room of that size. It's incredible. So if you ever get invited over for supper, go, 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 go. It'll be wonderful. So I went to Lydia's house, and I had the opportunity to meet her son. I met her daughter-in-law. I met um, her cousin and his wife. And I even got to enjoy a wonderful lunch with some people who aren't here this morning, which is a little bit of a bummer, but with Shirley Breifogel and with Nancy Martin. They were both there also. So there were some familiar faces and new faces. But as time went on, it became very clear that we approached Scripture differently because after we finished eating, we entered into discussion of some of the things that we had talked about. It was clear that some of us thought it was very literal in statement areas, and some of us thought it was metaphorical, and other of us weren't quite sure of how that applied, but we were trying anyway. It got quite lively for a couple moments there, and I have to admit, I enjoyed it, because my studies at university and my stare-downs and comments towards my professors made me really strong to look someone square in the face and go, no. So I'm pretty good with my opinion which some of you may object to some of the things that you'll hear me say throughout the course of my time here and your time here at this church and in heaven and all that jazz, but whatever, let's move on. But the point that I want to make is that Lydia's table can be summed up by the social implications of Matthew 5, verses 48, 43 through 48. For those of you that know Matthew 5 through 8, Right? Five, six, seven. Yeah, five, six, seven. So it ends before eight starts. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It is like the go-to for scriptures for me. I thoroughly enjoy it because Jesus doesn't play softball in those situations. He plays hardball. It makes it very clear. But what it says in Matthew 43 through 48, it says, You have heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain to the just and the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect as even your Father in heaven is perfect. This word perfect is not in the ancient fixed term that we like to think as Americans, which is perfect, without blemish. It's 
it's in a little box and cocoon. And it's like, you remember getting those shoes that you weren't allowed to wear except for school for a little while? Like, I, I feel like I had, I don't feel like that. Was that a really, did we do that? I don't remember doing that, did we? No, okay, I just wanted to double check because I was like, I'm pretty sure I just messed up whatever you gave me. It didn't matter what it was, toys, dirt, shoes, dirt, me, dirt, all of it got dirty, but whatever. But this perfect is a wonderful way to think about God, unchanged, unblemished, without flaw. It is not a healthy way to look at you because guess what? Look at your skin. If you're like me, it's got some spots on it. Yeah, some of you got more spots than I do. <laughs> no, um, Lord, deliver them from liver spots in Jesus' name. Anyway, um, sorry, my contact was about to fall out. Anyway, so we're, we're not perfect. We're not going to be like God in the sense of becoming him. I don't care what the Book of Mormon says. I will not ever be a God. I will be like him. I will assume his nature. I will look very comparable to him, if not almost unmistakable in heaven, because God restores us to such glory. But this mature sense, I think, is hysterical. And I love the fact that God is super sarcastic in it. I told Doug this morning that I was, he, he said, uh, well, good morning, Mr. Speaker. I was like, ooh, that makes me feel like I'm in the Senate. That's awkward. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm not much about politics. So I'm going to talk about Nancy Pelosi for a moment. Um, <laughs> I love, have you seen the meme of Nancy Pelosi? She's just like, <laughs> she's clapping to someone in the midst of it all. It's absolutely hysterical. It's way out of context, but it's beautiful. So I love that Jesus is sarcastic in this brief moment like Nancy Pelosi, where he's just like, good for you. You love people that love you. Mm, nice one. I love it. It allows me to be sarcastic every once in a while and not feel guilty. But he seems to say, uh, good for you all. Do you want a gold star next to your name? It, it, do, you, do you want your reward? Because that's really all you're going to get is that star. But no, instead, he seems to encourage, via this sarcasm, to do good for truth. He seems to say, do good for what is good. It, Jesus replies to the running man in Matthew 10. He says, only God is good. So we do what is good to be like God. So in the sense of this, to be perfect as your father is perfect, is to do the right thing, do what is good, right, holy, and true, because it is of God, it is not of you. Moving from the, the nature of self-protection to compassion is what happened at Lydia's table. We disagreed, and that was fine. But at different times, each of us stopped and took the opportunity to hear what the other person was saying. We wanted to see what the other person, where the other person was coming from. In fact, in those moments, we looked more like Jesus than we did when we were arguing our point that we were right, and this was the way to comprehend it. Why was it that way? Because frequently, I'm faced with people who think that Jesus was right all the time. I do not deny that. Jesus was. But Jesus is all-knowing. I'm not. I wished. It would be great to control all of this right now. Ooh, it would be so much fun. But I don't. 
what we, when we look like Jesus is when we relate. When we become fully human, we embrace our humanity, we embrace the fact that, guess what, you're just as jacked up as I am. That's when we look like Jesus. That's when we express him fully, is when we take the opportunity to listen to the other person. So at Lydia's house, the big table, she made even bigger by allowing us to listen to each other. I remember saying this. I'll share one little brief tidbit from it. Um, So I have a small fascination with the Amish also, and there is an Amish thought that is, you do not know whether you will enter into heaven or not, because to say that you know you are saved is to be boastful. And I said that I hold this belief to some extent, and Lydia said, whoa, you need to explain what you mean there, Garth, because I might have to tell you a few things. (laughs) This is the moment that you're like, this woman is a saint. I explained to her that I, I think it can be a little boastful to say it, but I trust that God is good and loves me and has claimed me as his own. I just don't need to flaunt it in front of everyone. And she's like, oh, that's fine, that's fine. You can, you can have that one. So we took the opportunity to listen to each other, to ask questions, to relate, and we allowed people to think differently than us at her table. So this brings me to my grandma's table, um, which is fun. Uh, if you ever get the chance to come to my grandma's house, uh, you will be able to spit on my parents' house and punch my aunt and uncle's house because we live close. Or they do. I don't really live there anymore. So if you will, picture it. Sicily, 1922. Anyone? 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 No, I'm just kidding. Sophia is probably my favorite TV person from the Golden Girls, and it's always picture it. Sicily, 1922. I was making marinara. It's wonderful. I love her almost as much as I like Yetta from The Nanny. Like, those are the, but Yetta's a chain smoker, so I'll go with the pasta maker. Okay, so that's where we're at. So I, I, will, I will take the food critic, and that's good. This table I want to explain to you is always a spread. My family has always gathered at my grandparents' house for any occasion it felt like as a kid. They lived across the road, but I felt like I was there all the time. Not a bad thing, just saying felt like I was there all the time. Um, It helped that my grandparents, well, yeah, I told you that part. Anyway, uh, my cousins and our respective parents would show up for magical feasts. We would show up at Christmas, we would show up at Thanksgiving, we would show up at New Year's, and it was wonderful. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a food coma, but they're a thing. And we would experience it every Thanksgiving, because if you consumed enough, it didn't matter what the floor was made of, it was comfortable, and you would take a nap. And you would get up, and we would have second Thanksgiving, and we would have third Thanksgiving, and we would have fourth Thanksgiving. Thanks be to God for surplus. But the table over time changed. My cousins did this crazy M-word thing. They got married, and they had kids. Just kidding. I love kids. (laughs) But they grew up. My family, my mom, my dad, my mom and my pop, they, they started to attend church for the first time in many years. And we started to make friends in church. And it was this weird thing because some of our friends didn't have a Thanksgiving feast to go to. And that was odd. So my grandparents did this funny thing. They invited them to our Thanksgiving meal. Which makes me think of Matthew 25, verses 14 through 46, focusing on verse 32. It says, All the nations were gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people, 
just as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. My family, with the spearhead of my grandparents, took people in who were not from our flock. They did not look like Eskridges, they did not talk like Eskridges, and they certainly did not eat like Eskridges. (laughs) Fun fact, my mom's maiden name is Eskridge, in case you needed to figure that one out. But we had friends that we had known for a few months. We had friends that we had known for the, pri- the previous year, and it was fantastic to have them around our table. Now, I, I need to figure out how to say this kindly because um, my uncles aren't here to defend themselves, but my family is skeptical of any human being. Uh, we're just like, who are you? You don't look like us. You don't smell like us. You don't eat like us. Mm. No, we're not that judgmental. Close, but not that judgmental. But anyway, so... They came. They came to our, our private family, our, our special events, and they began to socialize with them. They began to embrace them. We, I really, really thought that my family had the number game down. Like, we, we multiplied really well. My cousins did a great job at that married thing. Um, I came to this church and it was quickly outnumbered by two families from a ratio of three to one. So like there were three in these, this family called Kaufmans um, to my, but it's not just them, like there's a lot of Kaufmans. But this was the interesting thing that like we lost hardcore to the Mennonites. Like the Eskridges just went to the back row, bottom of the bracket, and that's fine. But this Eskridge family that I was part of now had new, fo- new folks that came there. That at the end of the day, they, were, they would separate and they would go to their respective homes. They wouldn't carry the Eskridge name with them, but they weren't excluded from the feast. No, instead, to take the scripture and stretch it out of context pretty intensely, if we're honest, um, we allowed them to be part of our family. They became part of our family. And what I mean by I'm stretching it is because in verses 14 through 30, Jesus tells the story of a master who, who takes money and he gives it to the three servants. One does a great job with it, another does a semi-job with it, and one hides it, and he goes ape on him. He casts him out and beats him into hell, literally, which is crazy. Verses 31 through 46, Jesus explains that God will sort all of humankind and explains, in fact, that the will of God, unbeknownst to some they are actually practicing here on heaven, here on earth, and they will receive heaven. This is one of those moments where I, um, you will hear me speak really kindly of Calvinist, Calvin, and Reformed thinkers. This is the only time, take it in, breathe it deep, it doesn't happen a lot. Um, for those of you that don't understand, Reformed theology is my enemy. Calvinism and Reformed theology, Calvin said himself that we don't know who is chosen for heaven or hell, so the best thing is to get everybody into the house and let God figure out the rest of it. So in essence is to like round up every human being that is outside of our church, put them in this pews, and hope for the best. In these two parables, it seems to be this twofold revelation from God. One, that God has invested gifts and talents into you. And the other, that people are doing the will of God that you don't even realize. That they are serving the Father's will that Jesus talks about with the two sons. One in which says, no, Dad, I'm not going to do it. And the other says, oh, I'll do it. And they do the opposite. 
So this is my grandmother's table. There are people who we can see that are family, and they loved my grandmother well. But the fun part was these people that we had invited to the table now also love my grandmother very, very well. They love her just like my family does. This is yet again a way that the table is extended by just inviting people who are not like us, just like my grandparents did. If we invite them to come and be part of our family, we set aside what they look like, how they talk, and we take a chance if we're willing to hang out with people who are different from us. We make the table bigger by listening. We make the table bigger by inviting. This brings me to my table. Um, so I have a really little table because my house is small. Those of you that have been there, you know. <laughs> it's a great time. Also, I need to fill you in on this a little bit, too. So my roommate is Brittany. Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm her roommate. She owns the house. So Brittany, who comes to church, used to attend pretty regularly here. Um, she's my roommate. I'm her roommate. She owns the house. No, we're not married. And no, we don't do anything else in the house, just so that's clear as well. Um, but that's, that's kind of our living situation, and it's, it's interesting. When we, when we entered into this, we decided it was very important for us to establish clear guidelines, um, because she is a girl, and I am a boy, and there are a lot of assumptions that come along with that. Most of the time that we have attended either this church or Greenwood, she was assumed as Miss Brittany Huffman, uh, um, which is not accurate. She's a Bolin. <laughs> So our house has a BH on it. Anyway, no, it doesn't have anything. We've known each other for the better part of 12 years. So we know each other's families. We know how things can be understood and taken. So we decided we would set out and make these clear parameters of how bills were taken care of, um, when guests were appropriate to the house, things like that. And I also wanted Brittany to have the really difficult conversations with me, just in case later on she had a different roommate who moved in. Um, and she knew what to say was okay and what was not okay. But about a week or maybe a month or so into us living in the same house, we came up with this saying, which is, this is a judgment-free zone. And that is how it's said. When we make these statements to each other, we point at this beam on the house and we go, it's a judgment-free zone! And the other person has usually made a really judgmental face and is currently in thralls of laughing hysterically at the other person because we have done something idiotic, either at church, <laughs> at our jobs, or with our families, or just independently on our own. So we have this thing. We shout it to each other. Let's see here. But it snaps us back into this reality in which we go, wait a second. Let me relate to what the other person is saying, because this is a serious statement at the moment, regardless of how crazy it is. We invite them to share where they're processing and what they're going through, because we choose to make each other's story part of ours. Brittany makes my story hers, and I make her story mine when we take the time to listen and process together. In John 13, 31 through 35, it says, as soon as Judas left the house, that's not Brittany, FYI, I'm not trying to make assumptions, um, but as Judas left the house, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will glorify him because, God will be glorified because of him. And since God received glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will, be, he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little while longer, 
And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you cannot go where I am going. So now I give you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I'm going to follow it with another scripture, which is from Matthew 9, 12, and 13. But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. Brittany and I aren't perfect. We don't even claim to be it. Um, (laughs) We both learned in a church which our friendship started in that it was best to kind of um, play the part than necessarily be honest all the time because judgments would come. There was a phrase that was frequently used in that church, uh, and it goes much like this. The Bible clearly says X, which sounds good, um, but is usually a loaded pistol, if we're honest. When the Bible says this, run from whoever just said it. (laughs) If they start with, I think this is clear in the Bible, they're a little receptive to listen to you. Try that person. Try talking to them. But when the person uses this phrase, they've usually made an assumption of knowing absolute truth that is revealed in Scripture. They've claimed the position of judge, jury, and executioner, and they will tell you whether you will be in heaven or you will not, depending on their rendering of the Scriptures. Mercy is missed. The status of the person being talked to and the questions that they have that they're raising are shot down, and they're not even sought to be understood. Having been part of that, we tend to err on the side of grace and mercy in our house, seeking to make the room to understand people, to see where they're coming from, and to not hold judgments. Finding ways to be Jesus to each other and to other folks is the goal that both Brittany and I have. This is hard at times, um, and it's meant unlearning some of the absolute truths that we used to claim. Brittany and I don't agree on certain parts of how to live out our faith, but we do our very best to listen to each other when we disagree. By practicing it with each other, we've made our house that very thing. You can come into our home no matter what your concerns are, no matter where you're at, regardless of how you feel. Uh, We're certainly not going to feel like we have the answer because most of the time we don't. And if we do, we tend to keep it to ourselves because we've learned opening up our mouth is inserting a giant foot. I'm going to let that one sink in because I'm going to agree with Bunny on that one, real hardcore. (laughs) But anyway, we trust that God is big enough to handle it, that no person can create a mess or ask a question so big that God can't deal with it. He is faithful. I really need you to get that this morning. He is faithful beyond what I can express to you and scream from this pulpit at the moment. He is faithful. He pursues us. He calls us to spur one another on to seek this openness to love and love as he is loved. We hear in Hebrews 10, this is yet another way to extend the table by giving people the place to be fully them without judgment, choosing to show mercy and love to people that we don't understand or agree with. This is how we have best found to be Jesus to people the church has cut out before they've even gotten to know their heart. 
We extend the table by listening. We extend the table by relating. We extend the table by removing our judgments. So the table that's talked about in Luke. Luke's recount of Jesus telling this parable makes me think of a situation that started way back in the Old Testament. We, we, we read it actually a little bit. It was Leviticus, where it's all these rules and regulations and who will get in and who won't get in. It's great. But Abraham was no better than anyone else in Ur, except that he heard God speak and he followed him. Abraham chose faith. And because of his faith, he received grace in the eyes of the Lord. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is one in which I wonder what on earth is going on here. It's a lot of books and a lot of pages dedicated to really dumb people. God says something, they listen for a little while, they screw up, they get oppressed, Jesus gets them out of jail. Jesus, well, yeah, Jesus gets them out of jail, okay? Trinity, strange thing. Anyway, God gets them out of jail, and they do it all over again for a really long time. At what point in time have you written in your scripture, you are just stupid. I've done it. But whatever, you don't have to write in yours because you think it's sacred. I used to think that too. It's cool. But the thing that I find fascinating is that God's not rattled in the midst of Israel going through this cycle. He's angry, yes. God is angry many times in Scripture, and there are people that think God is not angry now. I am a high person on the love of God, but there is still anger that resides with inside of him. But the fun part I get to say, and the part that makes me joyous, is that if you claim him as Savior and you follow after him, his anger is not towards you. It is nowhere to be found. It is as far as the east is from the west and to the depths of the ocean and beyond. His, his anger is far from you. He doesn't stop going after Israel, even though he's disappointed at times. The Old Testament authors showcase a God who wants this minority people these people that don't have much to offer, but he seems to want to show the world who he is through these outcasts. He seems to make plain the teachings, especially through the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 13, that this small group is like yeast working through bread, that just a little bit will go through it all. He almost indicates that he's trying to start this sidewalk movement more than he's looking to conquer the world with armies. Go figure. The all-powerful God chooses to opt out of armed forces and chooses to go with you, little weaklings, as well as me. The only other things that he does that I think we can learn from, and I really want to encourage our church for, and this is the moment where you're going to call me heretical, is cool. I'm fine with it. Most of my friends think I'm a heretic as well, but they still talk to me. I expect you to still talk to me. God made accommodations continually. Israel said, we want a king so we look like every other nation. God said, uh, you're going to hate it, but okay. They said, we want rules. And he's like, they're not going to be too hard for you. You're going to be able to obtain them, which is like my favorite thing to hear from some really old Christians is like, well, the Ten Commandments was the ideal rule, and God just made it difficult for us to need Jesus. God literally said, you can do it. You can do it. I'm not looking to do the Ten Commandments because I don't think they apply to me. There's my heretic moment. All right, throw the stones. Um, 
Yeah, thanks. Appreciate you, Tammy. We're in the same boat. Let's just row. <laughs> Why? God made accommodations. He meant people, he meant the people of Israel to give them a king. He gave them the Ten Commandments and said, This isn't too big for you. He made the table bigger. He made room for the screwed up, jacked up creation that he made, not because he made it bad, but because we went bad for whatever reason. That's right. Amen. You can have your theology on that. I ain't got one yet because I can't figure it out. It's too complicated. I'm just going to trust and believe God. As my professor would say, Mr. Thomas Kaiser, I quote you now, sir, so you do not send me an email. <clears throat> All of scripture can be summed up in two words. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Good Baptist he is. He extended it to us. The table in Luke shows that the house was not full. And God sent the messengers out yet again and said, go, get more. There's still room at the table. So I have a little note in here that says, round the wagons. So we're in the final stretch. If you can wake up for 30 seconds and get to this point, we're good. If you can't, enjoy your nap. Nikki can get blankets downstairs. Like, we got them. Code Purple's got this, like everybody. Like, we got you. This is where we're part of the story. Jesus is the clearest understanding of the nature of God because he is God. Paul says in Hebrews, long ago, at a time, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed, with the, appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making our purification of our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. Jesus shows us how to live. He allowed us to see God because we've seen him. The joy that we have as Anabaptists is we say that scripture is not our final authority. Jesus is our final authority. The best way to understand Jesus is to read our scriptures because that's where we see him. And because we can read it, we see him fulfilled and we see him in his fullness. We have seen God because God has revealed himself to us. He tells us, love as I have loved you. In effect, by loving others, we are loving God. And when we love God, we will love others. What I'm suggesting and I want to show and wanted to show from start to finish is that we're growing, maturing, we're becoming perfect, we're becoming like God. And part of this, I think, is what this community misses sometimes. I think we miss the opportunity to invite people because they don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't eat like us. I think we miss the opportunity because we're not willing to sit and listen at times. This doesn't apply for everyone. This applies for me. We'll just go there. 
this isn't about you. This is a correction for me because I suck as a human. Cool? We'll, we'll go with that so you don't feel so guilty and I don't seem like I'm attacking a human being because that's what I feel like at the moment. Anyway, I feel like we miss the opportunity to see the image of God. Because it is displayed in the diversity of the world. It is not displayed in the unity of thought. We said a collect at the beginning of all of this, which I cannot retain because that's who I am. Oh, well, it's in there somewhere. How good a thing it is when all of God's people live together in unity. Unity does not equal uniformity. Thank you, Ravi Zacharias, for that wonderful statement. We need to welcome people by extending the table, to listen, to allow them to choose to be part of our family, to not judge them for whatever state they are in or state they enter into. We need to see that God has made room for you and for me, and we need to get over ourselves and make room for others. Amen. I'm going to sound really progressive with that statement. I'm going to sound slightly heretical, and that's fine. I would encourage you to make accommodations in your life. To see where God loves when you have not. This is my hope, and I will start with a few words that I've heard from Tim first, uh, because I really enjoyed them. It's crazy, if you go back into our archives, both Tim and Tammy have spoke on the topic of a safe church. I'm trying to present a radical church that just goes, we don't need to look like everyone else, we just need to look like God, which is diversity. But Tim said at one point in time that um, everyone's welcome. Their questions are welcome. Their skepticism is welcome. Everyone's allowed to play with their toys in this house, even if they're different. Where am I at? Ooh, I am five minutes over. Sorry. Get ready to wrap it up. Promise. My hope for this community is that we make room for humanist, trans, Seekers, skeptics, confused, hurt, lost, pissed off, couples, singles, divorces, graduates, aged, you, the depressed, the autistic, the deaf, the illegal, the poor, the rich, the, in, the local whore. I like all of them. We need to make the table bigger all the time. Why? Because I will be damned if Satan is going to win. Amen. I will not. And I have a duty just as much as you have a duty of making this table bigger to include people in the kingdom of God. Because the table still has room. Help me extend the table to people that God wants and has sent and has called.